0: Santo Traficante Jr. was a very shrewd operator,
1: uh, and he was also very well-respected. He was a mafia don who was smart enough to avoid the limelight.
2: Florida in the mid-1950s was the international gateway to the Caribbean, and it was ruled by one man, Santo Traficante, a mob boss who turned the neighboring island of Cuba into a gambling
3: paradise. He was very powerful. He had a lot of connections. He was the natural selection, the natural choice to be sort of the go-to guy when it came to Cuba.
2: Traficante was propelled into success by his influence among higher offices and relationships with the likes of Fidel Castro and JFK.
3: Traficante definitely was hedging his bets. He was paying off the Batista officials and the government, but at the same time, he was giving money to the guerrillas and to Castro and their causes.
4: The, The fact that he came up with money and helped uh, JFK win, uh,
2: went by the board. Feld on the verge of becoming the wealthiest mob boss of them all, he thought he was betrayed by one head of state and then another. And so he plotted their downfalls. Nothing's
1: more uh,
2: sensational than the assassination of the president. This is Mafia. The world was shook on November 22, 1963, when, on an official visit in Dallas, Texas, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated in broad daylight. The assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was himself killed a few days later by a man named Jack Ruby. Scott Dietschy is author of a biography of Traficante, The Silent Dawn.
0: Initially, Ruby said that he was doing it because it was his patriotic duty. And it wasn't until a few years later that, the, that his underworld ties really became known outside the Dallas area. From
2: the beginning, the two murders were suspicious. And so the government set up several commissions investigating Kennedy's death. The first, known as the Warren Commission, began days after the assassination. In less than a year... The Warren report concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone and that his motives were merely political. Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby, had also acted alone. But the report immediately came under intense scrutiny. Critics said the report felt rushed, the details murky. Selwyn Rabb, author of The Five Families.
1: It was obvious to many people it had been done very flimsily. It wasn't a really solid report. There are many questions that arose later and led to uh, led uh, House and Senate investigations into what really happened.
2: And for over a decade afterward, the idea that Oswald was acting alone just didn't sit well with the public. The press reported on rumors that Oswald had been working for the CIA, that he had been working for the Cuban revolutionary leader Fidel Castro, or even that he had been working with the mob. 12 years after the Warren Report in 1976, a House Select Committee on Assassinations was formed to reinvestigate the death of John F. Kennedy.
1: And one of the uh, evidences that came up 10 years after the uh, Warren Commission report were all these FBI bugs and tapes showing that the mafia talking before and after About getting rid of John F. Kennedy. So there was an obvious need to look into whether or not the mob had a direct or indirect hand in killing the President of the United States. It was a must go. In September
2: 1978, Florida mob boss Santo Traficante was called in to testify. Traficante, the head of the Florida Mafia and one time king of Cuba's casinos, was believed to know something about the death of JFK. Scott Dietschy.
0: For Traficane to appear in front of the committee and actually testify uh, was pretty unusual. He, he certainly shunned and avoided the spotlight. He was never one to be very loquacious. He was very quiet, circumspect. So that was definitely um, a pretty unusual for him.
2: Both Oswald and Ruby had direct connections to Cuba. And somewhere in the middle of this web of intrigue sat the old Cuban racketeer, Santo Traficante. Attorney Robert Blakey was chief counsel of the
4: Select Committee on Assassinations. So, if you take his connections and trace them out in like a concentric circle, it looks like organized crime in some sense were responsible if it were conspiratorial if it were just Jack Ruby in a a crazy burst of uh, patriotism, if you want to call it that, then it's just two single assassins. If you take the associations of Oswald and run them out, they go back to the Soviet Union or uh, communism, and now you have the irreconcilability of left-wing communists and right wing mafioso. It's a bewilderment. But the question was, who exactly was
2: this trafficante whose name kept popping up? And how did he get himself involved with both of these conspiracies?
3: He had these piercing green eyes that could look right through your soul. And that's the type of person, if he wanted to be, he could be a ruthless killer. He could turn on you instantly and whack someone, and no problem at all.
2: Chris Regano is the son of Traficante's longtime lawyer, Frank Regano, and has had direct contact with Traficante.
3: He could order his his guys, his lieutenants, his capos, whatever it was, to whack someone. There's no doubt about it. He can do that. Author Scott Deechey.
0: By the late 1970s, Traficante was still considered the boss of the Tampa Mafia and still an influential figure not only in the mob scene in Florida, but nationally. Santo
2: Traficante had inherited the Florida mob from his father. Traficante Sr. was an old-fashioned tough mobster, notorious for eliminating his enemies, regardless of their profiles or reputations.
0: So um, uh, around the late 1940s, around 1950, Santo Traficante Sr., who uh, took over the mafia in Tampa in 1940, started transferring power over to his son, Santo Jr. It's pretty unusual for Mafia bosses to hand control over to the sons.
2: Traficante Jr. had learned from a young age that if someone crosses you, no matter how high up they are, you get rid of them. A few years earlier, Traficante Sr. had his supremacy challenged by a gangster called Jimmy Lumia. Lumia got whacked proper Mafia style. He was talking in the street when a gunman stepped out of a car, shot him several times, and then drove off. All this despite the fact that Lumia was a well-known figure in Florida, a close friend of the mayor, even. But along with his ruthless reputation, Traficante was also a mediator, and quickly built up his empire by connecting to other major mafia families.
0: Yeah, one of the really unique and interesting things is the Tampa Mafia family is always pretty small, uh, much smaller than some of the New York, Chicago, Detroit families. But Santo Traficante Jr. really started building the family up in the 1950s. He starts showing up at these major underworld events in New York.
2: Tampa was small, but the newly crowned young mobster boss was ambitious. He saw an opportunity to expand his gambling operations a potential gold mine sitting just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, Cuba. In the early 1950s, Cuba was America's gambling paradise and whorehouse. The country was run by ex-general Fulgencio Batista, who also saw profit in the hedonistic playground. So Batista and the Mafia struck a deal. Operating completely free of American regulations, Mobsters invested heavily in casinos and hotels in Cuba, where they would have no trouble with the authorities. Here's Scott Dietschy again.
0: The appeal of Cuba was at a, a very corruptible government at that time, and the mob was able to parlay that into a, a pretty lavish casino industry. You have to remember, these are, this is kind of in the pre-Las Vegas years, uh, where this big casino industry starts. It's only 90 miles off the coast of Florida. It's a foreign government and a friendly government, which I think was, was certainly attractive to,
1: to organized crime. It was a deal with the uh, Falangio Batista, who was a dictator, They kicked back every night, presumably, 10% of the earnings from these casinos, but nobody knows what the real take was. And it was a tropical paradise.
2: In the mid-50s, Santo Traficante relocated to Cuba to oversee his growing casino and nightclub business. With his own connections, he became the facilitator for other crime families to move in on the deal. The city of Tampa already had strong community ties with Cuba giving Traficante an advantage over other mobsters. He was also
0: the only one who could speak fluent Spanish. The Tampa Mafia had ties to Cuba, for a very specific reason, the section of Tampa, Ybor City, where a lot of the Sicilians lived was also home to the oldest Cuban population in the state of Florida, as well as the Spanish population. Traficante and the Tampa guys, they spoke Spanish, which a lot of the New York and Philly, uh, Boston mobsters who were operating in Cuba didn't.
1: One of the aspects that's not known about Santo Traficante was that he was really the major domo and the major figure in gambling in Havana. He was in charge. He had interest in five casinos. He raked in millions all the time.
2: Crime author Thomas Rapetto. And it was a booming place for the mafia. But
4: Traficanti had the establishment, the connections. He knew the people in, in uh, Cuba
1: in the 1950s. He was all set there. Because Cuba was important, Traficanti became important.
2: The casinos weren't the only money-making industry out on the island either. There was a new and even more lucrative market emerging, narcotics. It was only a short flight from Cuba, easy and fast to smuggle drugs into the U.S. And all the action took place right in Traficante's backyard.
1: The Traficante family had gotten there first. They had made the inroads and they were plugged in. So even if you got the northern mobsters coming down... They were second bananas to the Traficante family in Cuba. By
2: 1958, Traficante was making so much money between his Cuban casinos and the growing drug trade that he could be set up for life. But a young revolutionary named Fidel Castro was waging a guerrilla war against the government, threatening to overthrow the lax General Batista. Castro's revolution, and a communist revolution no less, could put Traficante's empire in jeopardy. Traficante cared little for politics, but he did care about his profits. Like a gambler covering all the angles, he quickly took steps to secure his investments, to ensure that Castro's revolutionary ambitions didn't threaten to derail his gravy train. In fact, Traficante already knew Fidel Castro personally. Scott Dicci
0: uh, yeah, In the years before the revolution, Castro had come to Tampa, uh, Ybor City a number of times to do fundraising and speaking events, and, and there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of lore says that he, uh, when he came to town he would meet with the Traficantes as well.
2: Traficante secured a deal with Castro. Even if the revolution succeeded, Castro guaranteed that for the mob in
3: Cuba, it would be business as usual. Chris Regano. Traficante definitely was hedging his bets. He was paying off the Batista officials and the government, but at the same time he was giving money to the guerrillas and to Castro and their causes. Travacani believed that they were just radicals, that they were just up in the mountains and the jungles.
2: But as the violence escalated, the war started to affect his earnings. Gamblers were deserting the casinos in Cuba altogether. Mob bosses started to fold up and leave the island nation. Traficante, however, was holding his nerve.
1: Uh, Traficante thought he really knew the Cuban political situation, and he wasn't worried about a revolution. In fact, uh, he imparted to some people that he'd been paying off indirectly to the Castro people. He was was making sure he was crossing his bets on both sides. So he had no concern. He thought the revolution... uh, might look dynamic and might look bloody for a little while while every other mob figure bolted back to the U.S. He stayed put. He felt secure.
3: When it became evident that they were not going to be able to stay in Cuba, Traficante was probably one of the last few folks to leave. I mean, all his buddies, everyone was pulling out. They're getting out of Cuba because they could see the writing on the wall. Travacani felt that since he was more of someone who had that background, that he was Italian, he could speak fluent Spanish, he was you know, living in Florida, and he had more of that relationship that somehow he could schmooze his way back in. On January 1st,
2: 1959, General Batista fled Cuba. Castro's guerrillas had beaten the government's army and took control of the island. And Traficante finally realized that he had seriously miscalculated the
1: situation. He thought he knew the territory, he was wrong. Traficante had always thought, look, you just buy your way out of anything down here, but Castro was a little different
3: fellow. Little did he know that Fidel, Castro, and all of his radicals didn't support anything that they were doing. So he waited too long to get out of Cuba.
2: Traficante felt he had been double-crossed, and that was something he wouldn't tolerate or forget. But with Castro proclaiming victory, shutting down his business was the least of his troubles. As a known Batista collaborator, there was a strong possibility Traficante would be detained. He knew that he had to get off the island as soon as possible. Scott Dicci
0: Traficante really thinks he's going to be okay because of his ties and his playing both sides during this conflict. But Castro has other things in mind and actually jails Traficante in Triscornia Detention Center in 1959.
2: Inside the detention center, Traficante realized that it wasn't just his criminal empire that was in danger. His very life was at risk behind these bars. Men were disappearing from the cells around him every day.
3: He could be next.
1: You could hear the execution, firing squads taking care of Castro's enemies.
3: They were going to execute him. I mean, that's how close it came for him not making out of Cuba. Traficante
2: had to get out and fast, but he couldn't do it alone. And so he reached out to one of his long-term allies, New Orleans mob boss Carlos Marcelo. Coincidentally, around the time Traficante was in jail, Carlos Marcelo's bagman, Jack Ruby, had been making frequent trips to Cuba. Professor G. Robert Blakey wondered if there was a tie in here. Could Jack Ruby have been trying to get Santo Traficante out of
4: jail? Now we know that Jack Ruby made quick trips from Cuba to Miami and back that have no explanation if he was just a um, a tourist. It, in all likelihood, it is that he may well have taken some of Traficante's money uh, out of Cuba to put back in the United States, but that's speculation rather than evidence. So. Two months after his arrest
2: by Castro, Traficante was suddenly and unexpectedly released from Cuban jail.
4: He shouldn't have gotten out, period, end of story. How did he get out? Well, he got out the way everybody gets out illicitly, by paying a bribe. That's the best explanation.
1: Uh, There's little doubt that he got out the very simple way. He bribed his way.
2: But years later, when Traficante was testifying in front of the House Select Committee about the assassination of JFK, he claimed on several occasions that he didn't know Jack Ruby and that he had never met him. It seemed that if the connection did in fact exist, Traficante understood the danger of linking himself to Jack Ruby. Meanwhile, the committee was trying to join the dots. Traficante
4: denied it, and denied that that, that he knew Jack Ruby. Uh, But there's every reason to disbelieve Traficante on it.
1: There's no doubt that Santo Traficante knew about uh, Jack Ruby, uh, mainly because Ruby had been connected to Marcello, Carlos Marcello in Louisiana, and that uh, he'd been running money mainly for Carlos Marcello out of Cuba. Uh, but for the main part, there's nobody's ever put the two of them together. Nobody's ever put Santo Traficante having any direct deals with Jack Ruby.
2: Out of prison. Traficante saw that Cuba wasn't safe for him anymore and was no longer the paradise it once had been. He had lost everything, the casinos, the customers, and this time, he didn't take any more risks. He left the island, unsure if he would ever return.
3: Traficante felt that it was just a temporary situation, that ultimately Castro, would only be there on a temporary basis and that he would go back into Cuba. It was just a, only a matter of time. So he was devastated. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They, they thought that it was just something that would be a matter of years and they could get back into Cuba and they can start rolling in the money again. So he, done, he did not think that this was going to be a long-term situation.
2: But Traficante would never recover any of his multi-million dollar investments. Here's Selwyn Rabb.
1: He felt he was big loser. He had more casinos than anybody else, five of them. It took millions out of his pocket. And uh, from his point of view, uh, the, the Cuban Revolution was a disaster.
2: The gambling empire Traficante had helped build in Cuba now shifted west to Bugsy Siegel's Las Vegas. Even worse, mob bosses across the United States who had invested in Traficante's Cuban haven now wanted their money back and Traficante's seat at the Mafia top table had been taken from him. In Traficante's mind, there was only one man to blame for his downfall.
1: Santo never forgave uh, Castro. One of his biggest aims in life was getting back to Cuba. And one of the ways he wanted to get back to Cuba was displacing and getting rid of Castro. He would have done anything he could possibly to do it.
2: To his luck, He wasn't the only one with a grudge against Fidel Castro. In Key West, Florida, anti-communist feelings were mounting. There was anger among Cuban communities. Castro was hanged in effigy in street protests. Anti-Castro forces were beginning to join hands in other cities.
0: Traficante kind of builds around himself this little mob of uh, Cuban gangsters who also left the island when Uh, when Batista fell. And this whole anti-Castro fervor starts reaching a fever pitch in in South Florida at that time.
2: Traficante's own involvement in the anti-Castro movement garnered the attention of some very powerful allies up north. In September 1960, Traficante was approached by a man with a message from the Chicago mobster Sam Giancana. Giancana wanted to enroll Traficante in one of the most high-profile hits the Mafia had ever gotten, Fidel Castro. But it wasn't Giancana himself who was authorizing the hit. In fact, the contract didn't come from the Mafia at all. It was from the CIA. CIA. in the next episode. When the U.S. government was looking for somebody to assassinate Castro, they said, well, who are good assassins? They said, the mafia. Conspiracies abound in the House Select Committee on assassinations. How did the CIA get into bed with a mob to get rid of Castro?
1: It just shows you the respect that law enforcement had for the mafia. They could get things done in a way that law enforcement or legitimate operations could not.
2: And Traficante continues his involvement in a web of intrigue and clandestine operations that potentially link him to one of the most notorious assassinations in United States history, John Fitzgerald Kennedy.
0: So because of Robert Kennedy's war on organized crime, a lot of mobsters start having some pretty bad feelings towards John F. Kennedy. And this goes across the country from Carlos Marcello in New Orleans, to Sam Giancana, to the bosses in New York. This
2: has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibingua. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Indochino for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.